the work of Azaga. Murder in the light of day. Hanbury Street is a long street that goes from Commercial Street to Baker's Row, not far from Bucks Row. Now demolished, number 29 was an old building with three floors. On the ground floor, Mr. Hardiman had a cat-made shop. On the first floor, Mr. Richardson and her grandson lived in three rooms, and she let out the other rooms. She also had a packing case business in the cellar at the back of the house. Her son, John, helped her in the business, but he did not live in Hanbury Street. A carman, John Davis, occupied the attic at the front with his wife and three sons. A total of 17 poor people lived in number 29, which was a crowded, busy place. From Ambury Street, people entered the house through outer door next to Mr. and Herdeman's shops. The door opened to a passage about 7-8 meters long. At the end of the passage, there was a door to the backyard. This was where Jack the Ripper murdered another woman in the early hours of September 18th. It was about 4.45 a.m. when John Richardson arrived at number 29. On his way to work at Spitalfields Market, he often checked the passage because strangers sometimes came in. This morning, he also wanted to check the cellar door at the back. Sometime before, thieves broke the lock and stole things. John walked throughout the passage and opened the door to the yard. Then he sat on some stone steps and took off one of his boots, which was pertinent eyes to was hurting his toe. He cut a piece of laser from the boots with a knife. It was getting light and he could see that the lock on the cellar door was secure. There was nobody in the yard. John left the house and went to the market. Albert Kadosh, a carpenter, lived at 27 Hanbury Street next to number 29. He got up at 5.15 a.m. and in a few minutes he went out to the backyard. He was returning to the house when he heard a voice in the next yard, yard say no. Three or four minutes later Albert came into the yard again and heard a sound like a bump against the wooden fence that separated the yards of number 27 and 29. He thought it was somebody falling against the fence but he did not look to see what it was. Then he left for work and passed Spitalfields Church at about 5.32 a.m. At 5.45 a.m. John Davis got up. By 6 o'clock he was ready for work and went downstairs to the backyard. From the top of the steps he saw a horrible sight. On his left, between the steps and the wooden fence, lay the mutilated body of a woman. 
Davis ran out into Ambrose Street, where he saw some workmen and shouted, Man, come here! They followed him, looked at the body from the steps, then ran to find a policeman. Inspector Joseph Chandler was on duty in Commercial Street at 6.10 a.m. when some workmen rushed towards him and told him about the dead woman. Chandler arrived at number 29 and, and noted that the woman was lying on her back with a deep cut from left to right across her throat and mutilation to her stomach. The inspector saw a piece of muslin and two small combs that the murderer had put near her feet. The killer also took some rings from her finger. The victim was one five two meters tall. She had dark brown hair and blue eyes. Two lower front teeth were missing. Her clothes were all old and dirty. A long black jacket down to her knees, petticoats, stocking, a black skirt and boots. Who was she? Any chapman or dark any to her friends. Was 47 years old. Her history told a sad story. When she had children, but one died and another was disabled. And he drank a lot and her marriage broke down. The small sum of money which she received from her husband stopped when he died in 1886. And he worked when possible, sending flowers or making clothes. Sometimes she borrowed money from her relatives. But her taste for alcohol dominated her life. And eventually she had to walk the streets as a prostitute. Let us follow Annie's movements before the night of her murder. She lived in a Latvian house and paid eight pennies a night. But the week before her murder, she was not at the Latvian house. She had a fight with a woman about a piece of soap and got a black eye. When she met her friend Amelia Palmer on September 2nd and 3rd, she showed her the black eye and a bruise on her face. The next day, she told Amelia she did not feel well. She did bathe, so Amelia gave her two pennies to buy something to eat. Don't spend it on Rome, she told Annie. Amelia saw Annie for the last time on the 7th. I must get some money or I can sleep in my leggings. And he said, at about 1.13 a.m. on September 18th, Annie was in the kitchen or her lugging house, eating potatoes and talking with the other luggers. She told the deputy that she did not have any money, but asked him to keep her bed because she wanted to return with the money. She left at about 1.15. Nobody saw her alive again. She never came back for her bed. Two people were important witnesses in the murder case. One, Albert Kadesh, 
heard a voice in the yard and a sound like that of somebody falling against the fence between 5.20 to 5.13 a.m. The other, Elizabeth Darren, said that as she was walking down Hanbury Street at about 5.13 a.m. on her way to Spitfields Market, she noticed a man and a woman talking outside number 29. She only saw the man's back, but she identified a woman as any Chapman later in the mortuary. Mr. Dora heard the man say, Will you? And the woman replied, Yes. Mr. Darrell could not describe the man very well. He had a dark complexion and was only a little taller than any. He wore a brown deerstalker hat and dark coat. She had the impression he was over 40 and perhaps foreign. We know that witnesses often make small errors in time, so the man Mr. Dalso was very probably the murderer, and he attacked Annie at approximately 5.13 a.m. On that morning, the sun rose at 5.23. Spitalfields market opened at 5. It was a busy morning, with a lot of people already in the streets, were getting up and um, heavy traffic for the market. Five people in number 29 could see the murder scene from their windows. This time Jack the Ripper was in a dangerous situation, but again nobody saw or heard him when he hit Annie in the light of a busy day and he escaped throughout the streets like a phantom. A red rose. Sunday, September 13th. 12.13 a.m. Bernard Street of Commercial Road was quiet. Although the weather was wet and breezy, it was a mild night. In Bernard Street, almost opposite the school, were two big wooden gates which opened into that field's yard, a dark narrow court numbers 242 and 14. Number 14 was the premises uh, of the International Working Men's Educational Club. Just over half an hour before Russian and Polish Jew were having a discussion in the club. Most of, the one of them went home at midnight. Twenty almost stayed behind in the club room upstairs. Some of them began singing Russian songs and dancing. There was a front door to the club in Bernard Street and a side door in that field's yard that opened into the club kitchen. The passage into the yard was about five meters long and extremely dark. But inside the yard light came from the club windows, the club office, and from some cottages on the other side of the yard. Constable William Smith's mate took him along Bernard Street every 25-13 minutes. At 12.13am he noticed a man and a woman by the school wall opposite that field yard. 
The woman wore a red flower on her jacket. The man had the parcel wrapped in newspaper. He was one seventy meters tall, about twenty-eight years old, and wore three deer stalker hat and dark glasses. At twelve forty-five, Israel's words was walking towards that field yard and when he saw a man stop and speak to a woman in the entrance. Schwartz later described the man as one, 65 meters tall, about 13, with a small brown mustache. He was wearing a dark jacket and trousers and a black cap with a peak. Suddenly, the man pulled the woman into the street and threw her down on the pavement. She screamed, but not loudly. Schwartz did not want any trouble, so he crossed the other side of the street. There he saw another man who was lighting a pipe. Then the first man shouted, Lipsky, perhaps, at Schwartz, perhaps, at the other man. Frightened, Schwartz ran away. The man with the pipe ran after him. Schwartz thought the man was following him. A few moments later, when he looked back, there was nobody behind him. What was going on? Later, Inspector Evelyn had a good theory. He knew that Lipsky was the name of a Jewish murderer, and in 1888 it was an insulting word used against Jews. Israel Schwartz was Jewish, so perhaps when the first man saw him, he shouted Lipsky to warn him aggressively to go away. Or perhaps he was warning the man with the pipe that Swartz was uh, uh, coming. Was this, was this man the murderer's accomplice, or was he an innocent witness who ran away like Swartz? At one yen, Louis Gamschitz was coming along Bern Street with his pony and cart. He lived with his wife and the club, which they managed together. When he drove his cart into the entrance to the field yard, the pony turned to the left and refused to go on. It was scared of something. Mr. Gamschitz looked down to his right, and in the pinch darkness he could just see a shape on the ground. He got off his cart and struck a match. Before the breeze blew out, the match he made uttered out a figure in a dress. It was a woman. Mr. Gamschitz, anxious about the safety of his wife, went into the club to look for her. He found her safe with some kind of members and told them about the woman. Then he returned to the yard with a candle and a friend. When they saw a light of blood flowing from the woman's neck, they ran to find a policeman. At the same time, Maurice Eagle, another member of the club, ran for help in the opposite direction. He found two policemen in Commercial Road who rushed to Dotfield Yard. Then one of them went out to bring a doctor. Edward Johnston, a doctor's assistant, arrived at 1.13.
He examined that woman and saw that she had a deep cut in her throat. Her body was still warm. Dr. Blackwell arrived at uh, uh, 1.60. He thought the woman had died between 20 to 30 minutes before. He noticed a scarf round her neck. It was tied on the left side and was pulled very tight. Had the killer sized the scarf from behind and pulled her to the ground where he cut uh, her throat? Detective Inspector Reed arrived at Fields Yard at 1.45. He noted that woman's height 1.57 meters and guessed her age about 42. She had curly dark brown hair, a pale complexion and light gray eyes. Two front teeth were missing and the top. She wore a long black jacket and a old black skirt. Her stockings were white, her bonnet black, and she was wearing boots. There was one red rose on her jacket. The witnesses identified the victim as the woman with the man near that very yard. A man named Michael Kidney also identified her. He said she lived with him and her name was Elizabeth Strike. He had seen her for the last time on September 25th. Elizabeth sometimes stayed at the Lucky House in Flower and Dean Street, where people called her wrongly. Mr. Tanner, the deputy, said she last saw Elizabeth alive about 7 p.m. on Saturday 29th in the kitchen of the Lucky House. Longley's was born Elizabeth Gustav's daughter in 1843 near Gothenburg in Sweden. She probably came to England for domestic work. In 1869 she married John Strive, a carpenter. Nobody knows when the marriage broke down, but in 1877 Elizabeth was living in Workhouse. Her husband died in 1884 when Longley's was lagging in flower and in state. According to the medical evidence, Elizabeth Stripe died about 12.15-6 a.m. or even perhaps at 12.15-8. If this is true, this Janusz's arrival at 1 a.m. very probably stopped the killer. So he only had time to cut his victim's throat. Then he did in the darkness of uh, Dirtfield's yard, and when Mr. Gamschitz ran into the club, he quickly escaped. But the murder of Elizabeth's stride was not enough. Jack the Ripper wanted more blood, and he went to look for another victim. After the murder of Elizabeth Stride, Jack the Ripper went to look for another victim. He walked west towards the city of London. It is only 12 minutes walk from Berner Street to Meter Square, 
where the second murder happened. Although we do not know what time the killer arrived there, we know what his victim did and can follow her movements on the night of September 29, 13th. At 18.13, on Saturday night, Constable Robinson found a woman lying on the pavement in Algate Heights Street. She was completely drunk. With the help of another constable, Robinson took her to Bishopsgate Street Police Station. She slept in a police cell for three hours. Then she started singing quietly, and at 12.13 she asked the policeman on duty when she could go. 25 minutes later, the policeman took her from her cell to the office. She asked him the time and he said nearly one o'clock, which was about the time of Elizabeth Strait's murder. The woman said, said her name was Mary Ann Kelly, but her real name was Catherine Edwards. This way, miss, said the policeman. He went with her to the street door and asked her to shut it when she left. Catherine said good night and she went to meet her fate at the end of Jack the Bibber. Meter Square is eight minutes walk from the police station. Perhaps Catherine arrived there at 1.10 am perhaps later. We can imagine her singing to herself as she walked along a small woman about 1.52 meters and thin. She looked about 14 and had dark brown hair under her black bonnet. Her clothes were old and dirty. She was wearing a red handkerchief around her neck, a black jacket, men's boots and an old white apron. This apron had an important part to play in the murder. Around 1.33, men came out of the Imperial Club in Duke Street. They passed a man and a woman at the corner of a church passage that led into Meter Square. The couple were talking quietly and the woman had her hand on the man's chest. The place was badly lit, but one man, Joseph Lewand, gave a description of them. He said the woman was short and wore a black jacket and bonnet. The man was aged 13, one centimeter tall, medium beard, with a fair complexion and moustache. He wore a Greek cap with a peak, a red and a kerchief around his neck, and had the appearance of a sailor. Mr. Lawinda told the police later, I don't think I can recognize him again. The three men passed on. The time was 1.35 a.m. Nine minutes later, Constable Edward Hawkins of the city police and the city police walked into Meter Square. Everything seemed quiet. It was the same dark silent square of 13 minutes before when he had walked around it. But this time he got a terrible shock. In the darkness corner of the square he was 
He saw the body of a woman in the light of his lantern. He ran to a warehouse nearby and called out for the night watchman, a man named Morris. Mr. Morris ran for assistance and soon returned with two policemen. Then Inspector Collard arrived from Bishop's Gate Police Station and Dr. Brown came at 2.18 to examine the body. There were also three plainclothes detectives on the streets that night. They were part of the police hunt for the Whitechapel killer. At the time of the murder, they were only a few streets away from Middle Square. Hearing about the murder, they went to the square. Then they went up to look for the killer. One of them walked throughout Gunston Street just before 2.15, but saw nothing suspicious and returned to Meter Square. At 2.20, Constable Alfred Long also walked along Gunston Street and saw nothing unusual. His beat took him there approximately every, thing, every 13 minutes. So at 2.55, he was back in Gunston Street. This time he saw a piece of blood stained apron in an open doorway. Near the piece of material in white chalk on the wall was a message. Jews are the men that will not be blamed for nothing. When Constable Long reported the graffiti, an inspector maker William sent orders to photograph it. But the chief of the Metropolitan Police, Sir Charles Warren, changed the order. He was afraid about anti-Jewish demonstrations, so he ordered his men to rub out the message. He destroyed an important clue. But he knew about the strong anti-Semitic feelings in the area. The piece of stain apron fitted exactly in the missing section of the victim's apron. The killer evidently took it with him and cleaned his hands on it. At some time between 2.20 and 2.55 he was in Wilson Street. He threw the piece of apron wet with blood in the doorway and brought the message, but perhaps he did not write the message. Perhaps it all it was already there, and the murderer dropped the apron near it by chance. Or did he see the graffiti and leave the apron there to put the blame on the Jews? We should never know the answer, but we know that Jack the River was an extraordinary killer. Cool, daring and efficient. He came and went invisibly. Constable Watkins saw nothing in Meter Square at 1.13. He did not see or hear anything when he entered it and discovered the body at 1.44 and only minutes before at 1.41 or 1.42 another officer looked into the square from church passage. I saw no one and heard no cry or noise, he said later. Mr. Morris, the night watchman in the warehouse, went to the door and looked into the square. Two moments before Constable Watkins called him, everything was quiet and deserted. So, in less than 15 minutes, the Reaper took Catherine into Mr. Square, killed her, mutilated her horribly, and escaped. 
right under the noses of the police. His escape was amazing. Immediately after the discovery of the murder, the streets were full of policemen. The police were already everywhere in this in the area after Lee's tried murder. But the discovery of the apron shows that the killer was out in the streets at some time between 2.20 and 2.55. 36 to 71 minutes after Watkins discovered the body. Galston Street is only 5 minutes from Middle Square. So what uh, was the murder doing? The po- to the police, Jack the Ripper was a mystery. He is still a mystery today. Catherine Edwards was the Ripper's uh, fourth victim. She was 42 and lived in Luggin House. People said she was jolly, always singing. His partner was John Kelly. When they parted at uh, 2 p.m. on Saturday 29th, Kelly told her to be careful about the white chapel killer. Don't you worry about me, replied Catherine. I take care of myself and I won't fall into his hands. work of a devil. Mary Jane Kelly was 25 years old, born in Limerick, Ireland. She moved to Wallace with her family when she was very young. At 16, she married a miner named Davis, who was killed in an explosion in the mines. Mary came to London in 1884. By 1886, she was living in the East End with Joe Fleming, who wanted to marry her. Nobody knows why she did not marry him. However, in 1887, she met Joe Barnett, a porter at the Billingsgate Fish Market. At the time, she was living at a police docking house in Shrove Street. Mary and Barnett decided to live together, and by the beginning, of uh, 1888, they were renting a room, 13 meters court in the street. Description of Mary suggests an attractive young woman, about 117 meters tall, with a stout, built blue eyes and a complexion as fair as a lady. She was pleasant though and sober, but she could be noisy and very quarrelsome when drunk. In fact, Joe Barnett walked out after a quarrel on October 13th. He was a reliable gunman who did not want Mary to go out on the streets. Unfortunately, he had not worked for some months, so the couple could not pay, could not pay the rent and Mary had returned to prostitution this way. This was one of the reasons why they quarreled that autumn. Nevertheless, Mary and Barnett remained friends. He frequently visited her and gave her money. He visited her around 7.30-7.45 on the evening on Thursday, November 18th, to tell her he had no work and could not give her any money. Mary's friend, a landress named 
Maria Harvey was there and uh, said that Mary and Bernard seemed to be friendly. She went soon after Bernard's arrival leaving some clothing, which included a man's overcoat, some shirts, a petticoat and a bonnet. When Barnett left at about 8 p.m., Mary knew that she had to go out into the streets to earn some money. Nearly four hours later, Marianne Cox, who lived in Middleport, somewhere walking along Dorset Street with a man. Mr. Cox followed them into the court and said good night, Mary Jane, as they were going into Mary's room. Mary was so drunk that she could not answer properly. Mr. Cox was a stranger in the light of the gas lamp opposite Mary's front door. He was about 36, 175 meters tall, stout, with a carrot gold mustache. He had a bottle of beer in his hand. As she went indoors, Mr. Cox heard Mary singing in Irish, Irish song. Just after midnight, Mr. Cox went out. When she came back at 1 a.m., there was a light in number 13 and Mary was still singing. After warming her hands, Mr. Cox went out again. Returning at 3 o'clock, she was no light in Mary's room and all was quiet. That night, it rained her heart and Mr. Cox could not sleep well, although men went in and out of the court. She did not hear hear anything suspicious, but another witness told a different story. Elizabeth Prater lived above Mary's room. She went to bed about 1.13 a.m. and fell asleep. Around two hours later, she woke up suddenly because her kitten was walking over her. She guessed that the time was about 3.13 at the moment, uh, she heard screams of murder, two or three times in a formal voice. She later turned this to a quiet cry of, oh, murder. Mr. Parater said she went back to sleep. She often heard cries of murder in the court. On Saturday, we passed Christ Church near Dorset Street, the church clocks struck two. 13. Mr. Lewis was going to stay with a friend at two minutes school. She slept badly in a chair until 3.13 when she heard the clock strike and was awake until nearly 5 o'clock. Just before 4 a.m. a young woman screamed murder not far away. Mr. Lewis did not think because cries like this were written in white shuffle. It is probably that Mr. Brother and Mr. Lewis paid enough attention to Mary. Kelly's last terrified cry for help. Friday, November 19th was the day when the citizens of London celebrated the Lord. I shall show I hope it will be a fine day tomorrow. Mary had told Mr. Brother the morning before, as I want to go to the Lord's Measure show. At uh, 10.45 on Friday morning, Marisa and the orphan John McCarthy was checking his account in a shop at 27 Dorset Street. He noticed that Mary owned him. 
29 shares in rent to so he sent his assistant Thomas Bowyer to her room to ask for the money. Bowyer got uh, no answer. When he knocked twice, he walked to his right round the corner where there were two windows of number 13. The window nearest to the door was broken in two places. Boyer put his eye in the closet back at the curtain. The first thing he saw were two pieces of flesh on the bedside table. Then he saw a body lying on the bed and a lot of blood. He ran back to the, the shop to tell McCarthy. When McCarthy looked through out the window, he switched turned pale. The body on the bed resembled something in a butcher's shop. He told Boyer to go a commercial street to commercial street police station. Inspector Beck and Dale, the detectives on duty, went to the murder scene. The door was locked. Inspector Evelyn arrived at twelve at eleven thirteen a.m. But the but he could not give the order to break open the door until 1.30 p.m. He had uh, to wait for some little hound dogs to arrive. At 1.30, when the news came that the dogs were not coming, he told McCarthy to break open the door. Nobody knew that it was not necessary. Bernard and Mary used to put hand throughout the broken window and pull back the box. To open the door. The scene in the light room was from a nightmare. It was only five, five, four, five meters square, and the door banged against the bedside table. There was not much furniture. An old table and two old chairs stood on the bed. Dirty floor in the fireplace were the ashes of a light fire. On the bed lay a body that was almost unrecognizable. Only the hair and eyes identified it as Mary Kelly. John McCarthy said later he looked more like the work of a devil than of a man. And Mrs. Peter, who looked throughout the window, said, I can never forget it if I live to be a hundred. Next thing, Inspector Abelene examined the ashes in the fireplace. A strong heat from the fire had melted part of a kettle. In the ashes, a blind found some woman's clothing, which Maria Harvey had left in the room. They had the reaper burnt them. When Evelyn discovered only one small piece of candle in the room, he thought that the killer had made a fire with the clothes because he needed more light to do his terrible work. This time, Jack the Reaper had time to finish his crime. Without interruption, it was truly the work of a devil. The work of a devil.